Let's pray. Lord, it's such a privilege to have the freedom to come and worship you this morning together. Lord, our time worshipping you is, is never wasted. But I pray that you'd speak to us as individuals and as a church, that you would um, stir our faith and our gratitude and provoke our service and our witness to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome, everyone. I'm not sure how many visitors we have in church, but you're particularly welcome if you're visiting today. Um, just very, very quickly, um, it's the new beginnings for a few things today. Uh, if we could just pop on the screen the purpose statement. Quite a few of you have probably come across some of this before. Uh, PCC members, are you here? You've seen this before. Can you indicate where you are? Quite a few of you. Uh, small group leaders, some of the small group leaders, are you here? Uh, have some of you seen this before? Um, Maybe some youth leaders and things like that. Staff team members, do they exist? We've got a few around here. You've seen it before. And I'm really sorry that we've kept this a secret for so long. But now you can be let in on what we've spent quite a lot of time uh, thinking about and praying about over the last probably about nine months. And the journey which Stephen has sort of charted for us is on the board out there. Just a bit of gentle background to it, we're going to come back to it time and time again. Bit of a dilemma, do we do a massive launch or we just get it out there and start living some of this stuff? And we decided rather than a massive launch to just get out there, live some of this stuff and then in January and at other times we'll keep on coming back to it. So our purpose statement, as I already said, um, is encounter, celebrate and share God's transforming love. And um, after extensive consultation, and believe you me, we know that consultation's a good thing to do, but it's sometimes quite difficult, because in thinking churches like Holy Trinity Claygate, maybe people come up with different ideas, and actually getting down to some core values that we'll all agree to is hard, but for the grace of God, and there's been plenty grace of God, and we've come up with our five values and I think I like Richard, and he's much better at expressing his enthusiasm than me. But I'm actually genuinely enthusiastic about what this might do for us as a community. And uh, in terms of our witness and our care and our mission, so connecting with God, all involved, loving and generous community, distinctive daily disciples of Jesus, and proactive in mission. And uh, I need to give you a health warning. We're going to be coming back to these time and time and time again. And uh, as a staff team, we're going to be quite disciplined at trying to notice where are these values, where's this purpose been expressed in our lives. On Monday mornings, we're just going to get together and hopefully week in, week out, we'll have plenty to celebrate. So that's the first thing. It is related, but you'll have to make the connections to the fact that we're starting a new sermon series. And I suppose that's connecting with God. We're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. He introduces himself at the start of Romans. I'm not going to be quoting loads and loads of verses, but if you've got your Bibles in front of you, um, it's packed with stuff uh, that we're not going to cover that's equally important, but we have to be selective. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. It's a gospel that's been promised through the prophets, 
and the scriptures. It's all about Jesus, the Son of God who lived among us and is now raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul was one of the most proactive missioners we've ever heard about who's ever walked the earth. Now, the reputation of the Roman church, a good reputation, was spreading throughout the world, verse 8. And born out of his love for God and the church, the Apostle Paul was praying for them. Someone asked me whether I was praying for their mission organization last week. It's a bit of an awkward question, actually, when they're one of the key ones of the church. What do I say? Do I lie? I'm praying for you all the time, is what I wanted to say. But I could say that I've prayed for them a little. So this isn't about guilt tripping, but the Apostle Paul's praying for the Roman church. He wants to visit them on his way to Spain, and he plans... His plans seem to be disrupted. So you want to check this out. It's chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 15, 23 and 24. It speaks of that. But as he's unable to visit, you see, he's longing to empower and encourage them and have, verse 13, a harvest amongst them, and God had already got there first. But these Christians in Rome, they're a mix We reckon the first ones got there as a result of Pentecost and then being scattered. Maybe at Stephen's stoning as well, a few of them were scattered. But unusually, they got there instead of Paul, but they were Jewish Christians. And they were mixing with Gentile Christians. And it was a little bit awkward. And I understand that the Jewish Christians might have been kicked out by the Romans for a short period of time. And left the church to the Gentile Christians. And then they were integrating them back again. And it was just a little bit messy. So the letter to Romans outlines what Paul believes, foundational teachings about the Christian faith in a very concentrated form. It's not Paul's whole theology about everything, so you can't go to Romans and get the full picture. It'd be rather useful to read his other writings and maybe hear what Jesus had to say on the subject as well. But it's really important stuff. And we have this window of opportunity Um, over the next few weeks to look at a few points from Romans. We haven't got the luxury to look at the whole thing. It's too long. Some churches do. In my son's church, who's a curate, they spent a year over this. We haven't got a year to spend on this ourselves, but you're welcome to look at it as I am, the other bits in the gaps in your own time. Few of us would dare to call ourselves experts on Romans. Are there any experts on the letter to the Romans in church this morning? Because I'm very happy to stand aside, if you are. But if you'll cope with my sort of bumbling on through this, so is it all right to say that it's quite difficult stuff in here, and we get little snapshots of it, and different Christians have come to different passages of Romans, and they've said that that's the main thing, or that's the main thing. Well, I'll let you into a little secret. There's lots of main things, so don't listen to anyone who's found the golden bullet. But there are some things, and I'm going to quote one in a second, that are quite significant. So, just one last thing. 
Romans emphasizes, before I get properly started, Romans emphasizes God's loving invitation for all people of whatever creed or culture, race, background, to confront and confess their sin and to know the grace of God by finding a deep assurance of faith in Jesus. And if we read the book of Romans in a prayerful way, it will transform your life. I can guarantee that. The truths that are contained in Romans will transform your life as you get hold of them. So, chapter 1, verse 16, brings for me, and this is just for me, this is my choice. You have other passages that are really important. I've got others too. I think verse 16 brings it into sharp focus, what Paul's purpose was. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. How easy can we say these words? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew then to the Gentile. My first question, and you can answer this in lots of ways, but what is the gospel? A definition is proclaiming and being God's news to the world. The Old Testament prophets pointed to a time when God would act decisively and bring salvation to all people. Jesus came in person to embody the good news. As God in the flesh... He made the good news real in word and in action. How cool, how scary might it have been to be around Jesus. One of the first things he did in his public ministry was to visit his hometown. So it's like one of our youth coming back here and standing up and doing the Bible reading that we've just had read to us. Imagine this. You can imagine a person, maybe one of your own children, The Spirit of the Lord, Luke 4, verse 16 and 17, which is from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Imagine if that was one of us. It was Mary's son. Jesus, who had brothers and sisters, then to the outrage of everyone who was listening, he told them that this scripture had been fulfilled in their hearing. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel, the good news, had a focal point. One person in history, the life-saving events of the cross And then the empty tomb. Paul pointed to Jesus as the only one in whom we could find salvation. Salvation is at the heart of the gospel. Salvation is God's rescue plan, his deliverance from slavery and sin. Salvation is about recognizing and establishing God's rule In our lives, Jesus' lordship. Some of you will know this. Most of you, maybe, the root meaning of the name Jesus 
means God saves. Jesus is the embodiment of salvation. Salvation in Christ deals with past, present, and future sins. Some of you need to hear this. Because of Jesus, we have been saved. We have been forgiven. We are being saved. We are being forgiven. And we will be saved. We will be forgiven. The death and resurrection of Jesus brings the possibility of salvation to everyone who humbly confesses their sins and puts their faith in Jesus, acknowledging that he's the boss of our lives and whole, the whole of creation. The Apostle Paul's passion for the gospel came as a result of his personal encounter with Jesus. Paul, as you know, tried to snuff the church out and stop the gospel message being shared. But on his conversion to the faith, he was transformed and became one of its most fearless advocates. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. A question. What's he going on about? What is there to be ashamed of? Probably doesn't affect any of us. What would the congregation here, if you chatted to people, do you think, we just had a little chat with one another that we'd find anything to be ashamed of about confessing our faith or the gospel. Like it's a little bit weird to share with sort of good friends or not so good friends. I don't know. Maybe you're really, really good at it and I'm praying that God raises up. There'll be some of us that are particularly good at sharing our faith and in the right sense, be proud to know Jesus and be proud to share his gospel. For some reason, partly because it's mysterious, partly because it is an offense, and we know that from Scripture, many try to sanitize and skirt around the core parts of the gospel, like the necessity of the cross, like, for me, the truth of the resurrection. Crucifixion is a horrible way to die. Maybe we don't like the notion of capital punishment and want to dial that down a bit, a little bit squeamish about blood. The temptation is to put the unsavory things of the gospel, the things that are a little bit provocative, to one side and sort of talk around them. The necessity of the cross, interestingly implicit in much of Romans, but explicit elsewhere in the New Testament, deals with our sin and separation from God. The cross is Jesus' once-for-all perfect sacrifice for sin. God's righteous demand is that we repent and give our whole selves, our whole lives to him in worship and service. The gospel is an offense 
because it challenges and changes our way of being, our spiritual, moral compass. The gospel invites us to live our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with Jesus' teaching. On a good day, many of us are really great at doing that. Thankfully, God is graceful. The God of the gospel presents us with the person of Jesus that we sometimes aren't quite ready to encounter. Jesus emptied himself of his power and came to earth in humility. We live in a world that advocates self-reliance and self-help. But we're invited to recognize that we are not as powerful and as all-knowing as we suppose. And all of us need to express our need for a saviour. Some of us have been, are ashamed to be distinctive and stand out from the crowd. Some of us, not all, like to be liked. It's nice to be liked. If we dare to stand out and be heralds of the gospel, what will people think? Our Archbishop this week has found out that people with vested interests in the worlds of finance and politics come gunning for you when you dare to speak out on some issues of the day. And for the record, I'm fully behind the Archbishop in his right to speak out about some of these things, and they're more highly nuanced if you listen to him than some have given him credit for. Are we ashamed to be associated with Jesus or share his gospel? It's wonderful that Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with you and me. With his help, we pray that we can say and live with conviction that we're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I thought I'd... um, Look up the Christian Solidarity Worldwide um, website. They're one of our mission partners. And I dug up two relatively recent stories about people that are not ashamed of the gospel. Like, these are extreme examples, okay? So don't worry about it. But let's hear them anyway. And we're told them because we're invited to pray. And that organization, with the support of others, work and be advocates to get some justice for some of these people. And what impresses me about Christian Solidarity Worldwide, they do fight the Christian cause, but they want religious freedom for all. I think Christianity is different in the sense that they want to respect um, the dignity of all humans. So, some of you will have heard about Boko Haram um, stealing quite a few children in Nigeria. But there was a girl called Leah... Um, And when they get them, they try and make them convert to Islam. And um, apparently five of the little girls that that went have died. Some of them have come back. There's a whole group that have come back. But the five that are dead have not come back. And one other girl has not come back. And the reason that she hasn't come back 
is that when they tried to get her to renounce her Christian faith, as a 15-year-old girl, she wouldn't. <gasps> what would you do? You get to stay in a camp with some Boko Haram terrorists. You could have your fingers crossed and say, like I renounce my faith, I'm joking by the way. And you get to go back to your family. But she hasn't. And her mother told local reporters her daughter's friends and have come back. They were dumped on the side of the road. Government complicit in all this. Tried to convince her, but she said she will not convert to Islam. The mother added, Boko Haram have since said, because she won't convert to Islam, she's going to remain behind. So there's one example of someone who's not ashamed of the gospel. Another one, um, this is in India. I'm not even going to... Look, I'm going to have a go. If I spell it to you, would you tell me how to pronounce this? It's, it's a place, it's a region. J-H-A-R-K, and then it's hand on the end. Okay, I can get that bit. How would you pronounce that? Jar, Jarkand? Has anyone heard of a place like that? Just pretend that you have. It's a real place in India, okay? And... Um, a few of them, they've changed the religious laws in some parts. And in some places there, it's really quite oppressive. So they're having a Christian marriage in this, I suppose, in this community where they wanted um, them not to be Christians. And, um, and basically, because they were doing a Christian marriage, people took offense and a few folks got locked up as a result of it, and so did the pastor and the pastor's helper. And I think sort of trumped up charges that from one of the father, one of the villagers brought the girl's father, maybe the one that was going to get married, and he alleged that the couple had forcibly tried to convert him to Christianity. So these laws are kicking in that it's all right to persecute Christians. My next story is from a few years ago, um, my previous church used to support open doors. And um, in this instance, there was uh, Christians from Hindu backgrounds being forced to um, reconvert. They become Christians, reconvert to Hinduism. We, don't, we hear about Muslims oppressing people, but Hindus do. And just for the record, Christians have been guilty as well in the past. So I'm not saying that we're completely righteous on this. But a man, name change, called Niraj, um, was um, um, hauled in by the religious leaders. He'd converted to Christianity. His own father hits him with a brick. He's quoted as saying, they put me under pressure to renounce my faith in Christ, but I refused. Then they took knives to the ones that have uh, confessed their faith in Jesus. If you deny your faith in Jesus, they said, you can go home. Niraj refused, saying, no, he's my Lord. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to leave him. But the pressure piled up. A mob of 200 gathered. Uh, the police threatened to strip them naked and electrocute them uh, with sort of prods. I don't quite know how you do that. Um, but he was so afraid and decided with his friends uh, that he needed to renounce his faith in Jesus. 
Niraj found himself back in the local community hall in front of the Hindu idols. His attackers forced him to recite the Hindu scriptures and smeared him with water mixed with cow dung and urine. The extremists took photographs of the man as proof of their reconversion. Then Niraj was allowed to go home to his wife, Ritu. That night, Niraj's heart was broken and he wept bitterly because he remembered the words of the Proverbs, Proverbs 24, 16, that say, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Niraj repented, recommitted his life to Christ and pro- promised the Lord he would never betray him again. Now, these are extraordinary stories, Distinctive daily discipleship for most of us is far more ordinary. It's about stuff like integrity, about loving service, about being reliable, about how we act and what we say. It's about involving God in our decision makings through prayers, being prepared to be known as Christians prioritizing our relationship with God in worship, in prayer, in the reading of the Scriptures. Under pressure, and how much would it take for me to renounce my faith? Even on a good day, I'm not very brave. How much would it take for us to renounce our faith? Hopefully, we'll never know. At times, I've certainly kept my head down or not spoken up, maybe been a bit invisible, blended into the crowd. I have got stories as well, and this is not me being boastful at all, of when I have courageously owned up to my faith. I don't know whether that would be helpful for those of you who work in the city or anywhere else to hear those stories sometimes. But on a good day, I have stood up and been counted. And so have you. If we failed, we're in really, really good company. Think of the disciples. Think of the Apostle Peter. So let's not beat ourselves about, about this sort of thing. Just ask God for his health, his, his forgiveness, a bit of that Pentecost courage. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I believe that we need to ask God to release his power and presence in us to remind us of the benefits of salvation. I believe that we need to ask God to release his power and presence to embolden and inspire us to share the gospel with others. It's life. Maybe we need to ask God to release more of the sort of faith revealed in those testimonies that I shared Wouldn't it be so wonderful if I didn't have to go on the internet to share second-hand stories 
about people who were courageous and faithful in their faith. And the stories came out of the congregation of Holy Trinity Claygate. Paul, knowing the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, was prepared to share the gospel in the face of opposition and persecution. He had an amazing story to tell. We don't have to have an amazing story. We're just called to tell our story. He was proud to know Jesus and make him known to anyone. Lord, help us to do the same. Amen.